Dedication and Introduction of Verses This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Larry Wilson Verses by Elair Belloc Dedication To John Swinnerton Fillimore A Dedication with this Book of Verse when you and I were little tiny boys, we took a most impertinent delight in foolish painted and misshapen toys that hidden mothers brought to us at night. Do you have that child's diviner part? The dear content a love familiar brings. Take these imperfect toys till in your heart they too attain the form of perfect things. Introduction by Joyce Kilmer far from the poet's being astray in prose writing said francis thompson it might plausibly be contended that english prose as an art is but a secondary stream of the purian fount and owes its very origin to the poets the first writer one remembers with whom prose became an art was sir philip sidney as sidney was a poet this quotation is relevant to a consideration of hilaire belloc because belloc is a poet who happens to be known chiefly for his prose his danton and robespierre have been read by every intelligent student of french history his path to rome the most high-spirited and engaging of travel books has passed through many editions his political writings are known to all lovers and many foes of democracy his whimsically imaginative novels have their large and appreciative audience and his exquisite brief essays are contemporary classics and since the unforgettable month of august of the unforgettable year nineteen fourteen hilaire belloc has added to the number of his friends many thousands who care little for belletta and less for the french revolution he has become certainly the most popular and by general opinion the shrewdest and best informed of all chroniclers and critics of the great war there is nothing it may be said about these achievements to indicate the poet how can this most public of publicists woo the shy and exacting muse his superabundant energy may now and again overflow in little lyrical rivulets but how can he find time to turn it into the deep channels of song well what is the difference between a poet who writes prose and a prose writer who writes verse the difference is easy to see but hard to describe mr thomas hardy is a prose writer he has forsaken the novel of which he was so distinguished a master to make cynical little sonnet portraits and to pour the acid wine of his philosophy a sort of perverted presbyterianism into the graceful amphora of poetic drama but he is not a poet thackeray was a prose writer in spite of his delicious light verse every novelist writes or has written verse but not all of them are poets of course sir walter scott was first of all a poet the greatest poet who ever wrote a novel and no one who has read love in the valley can hesitate to give meredith his proper title was macaulay a poet i think so but perhaps i am in a hopeless minority in my belief that the author of the battle of naseby and the lays of ancient rome was the last of the great english ballad makers but this general truth cannot i think honestly be denied there have been many great poets who have devoted most of their lives 
to writing prose. Some of them have died without discovering their neglected talent. I think that Walter Pater was one of these. Much that is annoyingly subtle or annoyingly elaborate in his essays needs only rhyme and rhythm, the lovely accidents of poetry, to become graceful and appropriate. His famous description of the Mona Lisa is worthless if considered as a piece of serious aesthetic criticism, but it would make an admirable sonnet, and it is significant that Walter Pater's two greatest pupils, Lionel Johnson and Father Gerard Hopkins, S.J., found expression for their genius not in prose, the chosen medium of their unforgettably most gracious friend, but in verse. From Walter Pater, that exquisite of letters, to the robust Hilaire Belloc may seem a long journey, but there is, I insist, this similarity between these contrasting writers. Both are poets, and both are known to fame by their prose. For proof that Walter Pater was a poet, it is necessary only to read his Renaissance studies, or his interpretations, unsound but fascinating, of the soul of ancient Greece. Often his essays, too delicately accurate in phrasing, or too heavily laden with golden rhetoric, seem almost to cry aloud for the relief of rhyme and rhythm. Now, Heller Belloc suggests in many of his prose sketches that he is not using his true medium. I remember a brief essay on sleep which appeared in the New Witness, or as it was then called, the Eyewitness, several years ago, which was not so much a complete work in itself as it was a draft for a poem. It had the economy of phrase, the concentration of idea, which is proper to poetry. But it is necessary in the case of Hilaire Belloc, as it is in that of Walter Pater, to search pages of prose for proof that their author is a poet. Now and then, all too seldom, the idea in this man's brain has insisted on its right, has scorned the proffered dress of prose, however fine the warp and woof, however stiff with rich verbal embroidery, and has demanded its rhymed and rhythmed wedding garments. Therefore, for proof that Ella Belloc is a poet, it is necessary only to read his poetry. Ella Belloc is a poet. He is also a Frenchman, an Englishman, an Oxford man, a Roman Catholic, a country gentleman, a soldier, a democrat, and a practical journalist. He is always all of these things. One sign that he is naturally a poet is that he is never deliberately a poet. No one can imagine him writing a poem to order, even to his own order. The poems knock at the door of his brain and demand to be let out, and he lets them out, carelessly enough, setting them comfortably down on paper simply because that is the treatment they desire. And this happens to be the way all real poetry is made. Not that all verse-makers work that way. They are men who come upon a waterfall or mountain or an emotion and say, Aha! Here is something out of which I can extract a poem. And they sit down in front of the waterfall or mountain or emotion and think up clever things to say about it. These things they put into metrical form, and the result they fondly call a poem. There is no harm in that. It's good exercise for the mind, and of it comes much interesting verse. But it is not the way in which the sum of the world's literature is increased. Could anything, for example, be less studied, be more clearly marked with the stigmata of that noble spontaneity we call inspiration, than the passionate, rushing, irresistible lines 
to the Balliol men still in Africa. Like Gilbert K. Chesterton and many other English Democrat, Hilaire Belloc deeply resented his country's war upon the Boers. Yet his heart went out to the friends of his university days who were fighting in Africa. They were fighting, he thought, in an unjust cause. But they were his friends, and they were at any rate fighting. And so he made something that seems, like all great writing, an utterance rather than a composition. He put his love of war in general, and his hatred of this war in particular, his devotion to Belial and to his friends of his youth, into one of the very few pieces of genuine poetry which the Boer War produced. Nor has any Oxford's much-sung colleges known praise more fit than this. House that armors a man, with the eyes of a boy and the heart of a ranger, and a laughing way in the teeth of the world, and a holy hunger and thirst for danger. But perhaps a more typical example of Heller Belloc's wanton genius is to be found not among those poems which are throughout the beautiful expressions of beautiful impressions, but among those which are careless, whimsical, colloquial. There is that delightful but somewhat exasperating dedicatory ode. Hilaire Belloc is talking, charmingly, as is his custom, to some of his friends who had belonged in their university days to a youthful revolutionary organization called the Republican Club. He happens to be talking in verse for no particular reason, except that it amuses him to talk in verse. He makes a number of excellent jokes, and enjoys them very much. His Pegasus is cantering down the road at a jolly gait, when suddenly, to the amazement of the spectators, it spreads out great golden wings and flashes like a meteor across the vault of heaven. We have been laughing at the droll tragedy of the opium-smoking Uncle Paul. We have been enjoying the humorous spectacle of the contemplative freshman. And suddenly we come upon a bit of astonishingly fine poetry. Who would expect in all this whimsical and jovial writing to find this really great stanza? From quiet homes and first beginning, out to the undiscovered ends, there's nothing worth the wear of winning but laughter and the love of friends. Who, having read these four lines, can forget them? And who but a poet could write them? But Hilaire Belloc has not forced himself into this high mood, nor does he bother to maintain it. He gaily passes on to another verse of drollery, and then not because he wishes to bring the poem to an effective climax, but merely because it happens to be his mood. He ends the escapade he calls an ode with eight or ten stanzas of nobly beautiful poetry. There is something almost uncanny about the flashes of inspiration which dart out at the astonished reader of Hilaire Belloc's most frivolous verse. Let me alter a famous epigram and call his light verse Circus Illuminated by Lighting. There is that monumental burlesque, the Nudigate poem, a prize poem submitted by Mr. Lambkin of Burford to the examiners of the University of Oxford on the prescribed poetic theme set by them in 1893, The Benefits of the Electric Light. It is a tremendous joke. With every line the reader echoes the author's laughter. But without the slightest warning, Hilaire Belloc passes from the rollicking burlesque to shrewd satire. He has been merrily jesting with a bladder on a stick. He suddenly draws a gleaming rapier and thrusts it into the heart of error. He makes Mr. Lambkin say, 
Life is a veil, its paths are dark and rough, only because we do not know enough. When science has discovered something more, we shall be happier than we were before. Here we find the directness and restraint which belong to really great satire. This is the materialistic theory, the religion of science, not burlesqued, not parodied, but merely stated nakedly, without the verbal frills and furbelows with which our forward-looking leaders of popular thought are accustomed to cover its obscene absurdity. Almost these very words have been uttered in a dozen rationalistic pulpits I could mention, pulpits occupied by robustious practical gentlemen with very large eyes, great favorites with the women's clubs. Their pet doctrines, their only and most offensive dogma, is not attacked, it is not ridiculed. It is merely stated for them in all kindness and simplicity. They cannot answer it, they cannot deny that it is a mercilessly fair statement of the philosophy that is their stock in trade. I hope that many of them will read it. Eller Belloc was born July twenty seventh, eighteen seventy. He was educated at the Oratory School, Edgbaston, and at Belial College, Oxford. After leaving school, he served as a driver in the Eighth Regiment of French Artillery at Toulouse, Mutter et Moselle, being at that time a French citizen. Later, he was naturalized as a British subject and entered the House of Commons in nineteen six as Liberal member for South Salford. British politicians will not soon forget the motion which L. R. Belloc introduced one day in the early spring of 1908, the motion that the party funds hitherto secretly administered be publicly audited. His vigorous and persistent campaign against the party system has placed him with Cecil Chesterton in the very front ranks of those to whom the Democrats of Great Britain must look for leadership and inspiration. He was always a keen student of military affairs. He prophesied long before the event the present international conflict, describing with astonishing accuracy the details of the German invasion of Belgium and the resistance of Liege. Now he occupies a unique position among the journalists who comment upon the war, having tremendously increased the circulation of land and water, the periodical for which he writes regularly and lecturing to a large audience once a week on the events of the war in one of the largest of london's concert halls queen's hall there the same vast crowds that listened to the war lectures used to gather to hear the works of the foremost german composers hilaire belloc as i have said is a frenchman an englishman an oxford man a country gentleman a soldier a democrat and a practical journalist in all these characters he utters his poetry. As a Frenchman, he is vivacious and gallant and quick. He has the noble English frankness and the broad, irresistible English mirthfulness which is so much more inclusive than that narrow possession, a sense of humor. Democrat though he is, there is about him something of the atmosphere of the country squire of some generations ago. It is in his heartiness, his jovial dignity, his deep love of the land the author of the south country in courtesy has made sussex his inalienable possession he owns sussex as dickens owns london and blackmore owns devonshire and he is thoroughly a soldier a happy warrior as brave and dexterous no one can doubt with a sword of steel as with a sword of words he has taken the most severe risk which a poet can take he has written poems about childhood 
what happened when the late algernon charles swinburne bent his energies to the task of celebrating this theme as the result of his solemn meditation on the mystery of childhood he arrived at two conclusions which he melodiously announced to the world they were first that the face of a baby wearing a plush cap looks like a moss rosebud in its soft sheath and second that astrolabe rhymes with babe very charming of course but certainly unworthy of a great poet and upon this the obvious comment is that swinburne was not a great poet he took a theme terribly great and terribly simple and about it he wrote something rather pretty now when a really great poet francis thompson for example has before him such a theme as childhood he does not spend his time making far-fetched comparisons with moss rose buds or hunting for words that rhyme with babe childhood suggests him who made childhood sacred so the poet writes ex ore infantium or such a poem as that which ends with the line look for me in the nurseries of heaven a poet may write pleasingly about mountains and cyclones and battles and the love of woman but if he is at all timid about the verdict of posterity he should avoid the theme of childhood as he would avoid the plague for only great poets can write about childhood poems worthy to be printed eller belloc has written poems about children and they are worthy to be printed he is never ironic when he thinks about childhood he is gay whimsical with a slight suggestion of elfin cynicism but he is direct as a child is direct he has written two dedicatory poems for books to be given to children they are slight things but they are a revelation of their author's power to do what only a very few poets can do that is to enter into the heart and mind of the child following that advice which has its literary as well as a moral significance to become as a little child and in many of eller belloc's poems by no means intended for childish audiences there is an appealing simplicity that is genuinely and beautifully childish something quite different from the adult and highly artificial simplicity of professor a e hausman's a shropshire lad take that quatrain the early morning it is as clear and cool as the time it celebrates it is absolutely destitute of rhetorical indulgence poetical inversions or literary phrasing it is in fact conversation inspired conversation which is poetry it might have been written by a wordsworth not painfully self-conscious or by a blake whose brain was not yet muddled with impressionistic metaphysics and his christmas carols they are fit to be sung by a chorus of children can any songs of the sort receive higher praise than that children too appreciate the birds and our lord and our lady nor is that wonderful prayer rather flatly called in a boat beyond the reach of their intelligence naturally enough illa belloc is strongly drawn to the almost violent simplicity of the ballad bishop percy would not have enjoyed the theological and political atmosphere of the little serving-maid but he would have acknowledged its irresistible charm there is that wholly delightful poem the death and last confession of wandering peter a most belokian vagabond he wandered everywhere he would and all that he approved was sung and most of what he saw was good says peter if all that i have loved and seen be with me on the judgment day i shall be saved the crowd between from satan and his foul array 
Eller Belloc has seen much and loved much. He has sung lustily the things he approved. With what hearty hatred he has sung the things he disapproved. Eller Belloc is not the man to spend much time in analyzing his own emotions. He is not, thank God, a poetical psychologist. Love songs, drinking songs, battle songs. It is with these primitive and democratic things that he is chiefly concerned. But there's something more dramatic than wine or love or war. That thing is faith. And Eller Belloc's part in increasing the sum of the world's beauty would not be the considerable thing that it is were it not for his faith. It is not, like Dante Gabriel Rossetti, that he is attracted by the church's pageantry and wealth of legend. To Eller Belloc, the pageantry is only incidental. The essential thing is his Catholic faith. He writes convincingly about Our Lady and St. Joseph and the child Jesus because he himself is convinced. He does not delve into medieval tradition in quest of picturesque incidents. He merely writes what he knows to be true. His faith furnishes him with the theme of those of his poems which are more likely to endure. His faith gives him the rapture of inspiration. His faith enables him, as it has enabled many another poet, to see in the lamp that is beauty the light that is God. And therein is Eller Belloc most thoroughly and consistently a Democrat. For in this twentieth century it happens that there is on earth only one genuine democratic institution, and that institution is the Catholic Church. End of Introduction